The following message is from King's Cross Church in Manchester, New Hampshire. For more information, please visit us at kingscrossmanchester.com. What we're going to do this morning is we want to look at 2 Corinthians chapter 3, verses 18, but we're not going to get to the actual passage for a few minutes because I just want to kind of build up to it. Because the Apostle Paul, when he is writing this, he goes back to something in the Old Testament. So just to get us started, I'm going to picture two different people. Well, you picture a girl named Sarah. So Sarah's a new Christian, and she's growing fast. And everyone who knows her is astonished just at this change that has taken place in her life. She's way more patient than she was before. She's more loving. She's more kind. She's just different, and people can see that she's different. And she can't read her Bible fast enough. And she's always asking people these different questions. And she can't wait till she gets to church. Um, so getting back to Sarah, right, people see the change in Sarah. People see something different that's going on. Sarah is beholding the glory of the Lord for the first time in her life. Picture another guy named Steve. Steve's been a Christian for quite a while now, and he doesn't really feel like he's growing much at all. And he can't really remember the last time that he read his Bible. He can't remember the last time he was really excited to hear a sermon. He likes church, and he likes to be there, but mainly it's just because of the people. He likes the people who are there. Steve can't really remember the last time he beheld the glory of the Lord. So I'm using that term, beheld the glory of the Lord, because this is what the Apostle Paul is going to want to teach us about. But in the New Testament, the Apostle Paul wants us to see just how amazing the glory of Christ is. And as he's going through, he's like, how can I let people know what this amazing thing is. What can I compare it to? And he thinks back to the Old Testament. He thinks back to the story of Moses. And he's like, I can compare it to that because Moses, um, the story of Moses is the story of the Old Covenant. And the story of Christ is the story of the New Covenant. And so he contrasts and compares these two things. And see, the Old Covenant, you had to obey, and if you didn't obey it completely, it brought death. It was a covenant of death. With Jesus Christ, it's a covenant that brings life in it. And so I know last year you guys went through the book of Exodus, and so I know that the story of the Israelites, and I know that the story of Moses is uh, familiar with you. But I want to look at it again, and I want to go back, because I want to see the story of Moses and this particular section of it through the eyes of Paul, because I want you to see what Paul saw when he looked back. So, the Israelites are slaves in Egypt. And God tells Moses, I want you to rescue the Israelites. I want you to lead them to freedom. There's like two million Israelites in Egypt who are slaves. And God tells one person, I want you to rescue these two million people. And so Moses listens to God, Moses obeys God, and Moses does. Moses rescues the people of God. Moses brings the people of God out to freedom. And when he takes them out, the first place he takes them to is this wilderness. And it is there that God is going to change these two million people from slaves to a nation. So they go to Mount Sinai, Mount Sinai, and God is going to give them the law. And so they're up at the base of the mountain, and God calls Moses and the mountain, you have to picture what the mountain is like. When they get to the mountain, there's this big, thick cloud. 
This mountain is wrapped in smoke, and the smoke is just like going up and up into the heavens, billowing up. And there comes thunder, and there comes lightning. The whole mountain at this point is trembling. And there's this sound of the trumpet, and the sound of the trumpet gets louder and gets louder and gets louder and gets louder. All of the people are now trembling in fear. God descends to the mountain. God goes to Mount Sinai. And God calls Moses and says, come up here. So picture, can you imagine what that's like, right? Can you picture just the whole scene with the mountain shaking, with thunder, with lightning, the noise, the sound, the sights, the smells, everything. And he says, come up to the mountain. So Moses goes up to the mountain and God speaks to him. God gives him the law. He gives him these two tablets that are written with the finger of God himself. So Moses is up on the mountain, and he's up on the mountain for quite a while. And the people watch Moses go up into this smoke, go up and disappear. And he doesn't come back down. So the people finally get tired of waiting for him. They believe that God has destroyed Moses. So what do they do? They build an idol. They build this golden calf. They all have jewelry, and they all donate this jewelry. And they melt the jewelry down, and they build this calf. And they begin to worship this golden calf, this idol instead of God. And Moses is up there, and God is talking to Moses, and God tells Moses what the people are doing, and that his intention is to destroy the people. He tells them that they've turned away. They're, they're worshiping this. So Moses begins to plead with God. And he says this. He says, Oh Lord, why does your wrath burn hot against your people? Why should the Egyptians say, with evil intent did he bring them out just to kill them in the mountains. Moses says, turn from your burning anger. Relent from this disaster against your people. Remember Abraham and Isaac and Israel. So Moses goes down the mountain. And as he's going down, he hears something. He hears this noise. The noise turns out to be the people singing. And when he gets closer, he sees that not only they're singing, but they're dancing. They're all singing and dancing in front of this golden calf. And Moses gets upset. And Moses' that anger then burns hot. And so Moses takes the tablets. These tablets are the writing of God. God's own finger wrote these tablets. And he takes them and he throws them on the ground and he smashes them. He breaks them at the foot of the mountain. Moses then confronts the people. And after this confrontation takes place, he continues to plead to God. He asked God to turn from his anger. He asked God to save the people, and God listens to him. The Lord relents from the disaster that he was going to go. So what happens next? God tells Moses to go back up the mountain again. So Moses goes back up the second time, and he beholds God's glory. And God renews the covenant, and God gives Moses these new tablets. And so Moses is now on the mountain for 40 days, he eats nothing. He drinks nothing for 40 days. He spends 40 days in the glory of God. Moses then comes down from the mountain, and he's changed. Moses comes down from the mountain, he's changed. He's changed inwardly, and he's also changed outwardly. His face shines. His face shines, right? He's been talking to God. He's behold his glory. His face shines just from being in the presence of God. The people, when they see him come down from the mountain, are terrified of him. 
His face shines. He's coming back down from the mountain. Um, God tells him, every, or Moses, I'm sorry, Moses tells him everything that God commanded, and then he takes a veil and he puts it over his face. And Moses would speak to God. And when Moses would speak to God, or when God would speak to Moses, is probably the most accurate thing, God would speak to Moses. Moses would go into a tent. They call it a tent of meeting. And when Moses was in the tent, he would take the veil off his face because he was with God. And he would behold God's glory, and God would speak to him. When he came out of the tent, he would keep the veil off until he told the people what it was that God had told them. And then he would put the veil back on his um, face. Can you imagine what that's like? Can you picture what this is like at all? Moses beholds God's glory. And because of this, his face shines. It shines so much that the people are afraid of him. It shines so much that he puts a veil over his face just to diminish it. Um, Moses is clearly changed. Moses doesn't change himself. He's changed because he's beheld the glory of God. And so the Apostle Paul wants us to understand the glory of Christ. And so he compares it to this glory that Moses had to this covenant. So now we're coming to our passage, and this is 2 Corinthians chapter 3, and we're going to read verses 6 to 18. And it says this. It says, God has made us sufficient. Sorry about that. It says, God has made us sufficient to be ministers of a new covenant, not of the letter, but of the Spirit. For the letter kills, but the Spirit gives life. Now, if the ministry of death, carved in letters on stone, came with such glory that the Israelites could not even gaze at Moses' face because of its glory, which was being brought to an end, will not the ministry of the Spirit have even more glory? For if there was glory in the ministry of condemnation, the ministry of the righteousness must far exceed it in glory. Indeed, in this case, what once had glory has come to have no glory at all because of the glory that surpasses it. For if what was being brought to an end came with glory, much more will what is permanent have glory. Since we have such a hope, we are very bold, not like Moses who had put a veil over his face so the Israelites might not gaze at the outcome of what was being brought to an end, but their minds were hardened. For to this day, when they read the Old Covenant, that same veil remains unlifted because only through Christ is it taken away. Yes, to this day, whenever Moses is read, a veil lies over their hearts. But when one turns to the Lord, the veil is removed. Now the Lord is the Spirit, and where the Spirit of the Lord is, there is freedom. And we all, with unveiled face, beholding the glory of the Lord, are being transformed into the same image from one degree of glory to another. For this comes from the Lord who is the Spirit. See, what he's saying is, if the glory that's seen in this ministry of law, right, and that law only brings condemnation, and it only brings death, if that itself, that ministry of condemnation and death was so glorious that Moses' face shone because of that, so the people couldn't even look at him, how much more glorious, how much more greater is the glory of Christ? who brings us not death and condemnation, but forgiveness and life. This Moses and that covenant was temporary. It was coming to an end. Jesus Christ and this new covenant is permanent. It will not end. And he's saying, look at the glory of that. 
And can you imagine what the glory of Christ is, this permanent glory? The comparison is so great, what once had glory seems to have nothing at all. So picture it like this, right? You're driving at night, it's pitch black, there's no moon, there's no lights, nothing, and you turn on your headlights. You can now see, right? You turn on your brights and you can really see a whole lot. That light is like the glory of the covenant of ministry and death. You can now see where you couldn't see before. But if you turn on those same high beams during the day, like in a sunny summer light, you don't even know that you have them on. You have no idea that you have them on. Why? Because the glory of the sun is so much greater than the glory of the headlights. And this is what Paul is saying. The glory of Christ is so much greater because it's a glory, it's a glory that shows us life, redemption, forgiveness, eternal life. What once had glory has come to have no glory at all. And Paul is telling us that when we behold this glory, we change. And we become more and more like Christ. Now we want to be changed. We want to be like Christ. So we just want to take a little bit of time and just kind of unpack what this looks like. And we want to answer four questions. What do we become? How are we changed? How long does it take? And how do we behold this glory? So first of all, what are we becoming? We are being transformed into Jesus Christ's image. We are becoming more and more like Christ. You are being changed into the image of God. So what are some of those things that you can expect to see? You can expect to see more of the fruit of the Spirit. You can expect to have more love, more joy, more peace, more patience, more kindness and goodness and faithfulness, gentleness and self-control. You will love God more. You'll love his people more. You'll be less judgmental. You'll be more forgiving. You'll start to see your sin quicker and quicker and quicker. And you will ask for forgiveness quicker and quicker and quicker. Because in Jesus Christ, there is no sin. And as we become more and more like Christ, when we see that sin in our life, we will want to confess it. We'll want to ask Jesus Christ for his forgiveness. So let's look at Moses once again, just as a picture of what that kind of looks like. And so Moses became much more like Christ after beholding the God's glory, right? So the people make the golden calf. God's ready to destroy the people. God had promised Abraham, not Moses, but even before that, we have Abraham, Isaac, Jacob. Is that the right order? Thank you. <laughs> we got these three big guys, right? Abraham's the first one. Then he had a kid. Covenant went through. Then he had a grandkid. It went like through that. So, so God promises Abraham, the first guy, he says, I'm going to make you into a great nation. This is what I'm going to make you into a great nation. Those became the people of Israel. Those were the two million people. God, Moses is up on the mountain. Those two million people, those people of, of Abraham, those children of Abraham, have forsaken God, built a calf. They're like, this is our God now. We're doing this. And God says... I'm going to destroy these people, and that covenant is going to go through you, Abraham. You're the only one who's going to make it out, and you are going to be the nation. Technically, right, God can do that because he is a son of Abraham, right? I mean, technically, God could have done what he said to do. But what does Moses do? Moses comes up, and he says, alas, this people have sinned a great sin. They have made themselves gods of gold. But now, if you will, forgive their sins. But if not, please, 
please blot me out of the book that you have written. The book he's written is the book of life. It's the, it's the people who are going to be saved. And Moses is saying, I'm giving my life for these people. If you are taking these people, take my life. But I want to give my life. I'm the only one, and I want to give my life. So who does that sound like? Right? That sounds like Jesus Christ, who did give his life for us. Moses made the offer. Christ actually gave his life for us. And so this is what it means. And so Moses is becoming more and more and more like Christ, so that he's even willing to give up his life for these people. Um, Ultimately, we will be sanctified completely. Ultimately, we will be in heaven with God. We'll have a new body. We'll have no sin. We'll have no corruption. And we will see God face to face. We will look into his eyes. We will see his smile. We will walk with him. And our whole Christian life, from the beginning to eternity, is one of beholding the glory of God so that we become more like him. So, the question is, how are we changed, right? So this is what we're being changed into. We're being changed into becoming more and more like Christ. So how does this happen? First of all, we need to realize that it is God who is the author and the power of this change, not us. In other words, he's the one who starts it, and it's his power that lets us complete it. So, we've got three verses that we want to look at. The first uh, verse is um, 2 Corinthians. Actually, I'm going to bounce around a little bit. It's uh, 14, 16, plus 18. Um, We have an overhead for this one. Um, But our change begins as we behold Jesus Christ as our Savior for the first time. So it says this. Says, and this again was from our passage. Um, says, but their minds were hardened. For to this day, when they read the old covenant, the same veil remains unlifted, because only through Christ is it taken away. Yes, to this day, whenever Moses is read, a veil lies over the heart. But when one turns to the Lord, the veil is removed, and we all, with unveiled face, beholding the glory of the Lord, are being transformed. So, see, we this process begins. When we, the veil is removed and we see God, we see Jesus Christ, we behold his glory. And um, the veil is taken away and we see this right for the first time. And so it begins, once again, this is God who's initiating this. Um, Second, we don't change by our own power, but we change by the power of the Spirit. Verse 18, the second half of that verse says, for this comes from the Lord who is the Spirit. We are being transformed, but it comes from the Lord who is the Spirit. It's the power of the Holy Spirit that changes us. It's not us that change us. It's God who is going to change us. And finally, this change is completed by God. So it's started by God. It's the power of the Holy Spirit, and it's finished by God. Philippians 1.6 says, I am sure this, that he who began a work, a good work in you, will bring it to completion at the day of Jesus Christ. It is God who's going to bring it to completion. So in other words, we don't make ourselves holy, and then God accepts us, right? But God saves us, and then he makes us holy. Because we are his. And that change occurs as we behold the glory of God. And if you think about it, it makes sense, right? Um, That this change happens as we behold God's glory. right? Because if you want your faith to increase, 
It has to increase by trusting God more. That's what our faith is in. It has to increase that way. If you want your love to increase, right, it has to increase by knowing God more. And all of these increases begin as we behold God more and more. So if we want to become more Christ-like, we do this. So, um, next question. How long does it take? How long does it take? Because sometimes it feels like we're not moving anywhere, right? It just feels like here we are and, and this is where we've been. But how long does it take? The answer is a lifetime. It takes a lifetime. It takes a lifetime. And we're not fully changed until we're in heaven when we see Christ face to face. Um, in verse 14 or in 18, it says, we are being transformed. We are being transformed, right? So this, this implies that this being transformed is a process, and the process doesn't happen instantaneously. You are not changed instantaneously, and neither is your husband or your wife or your brother or your sister or your friend or anyone else. No one is changed instantly, but we are being transformed. And this takes your entire life. God is continually changing you and God is continually making you more and more Christ-like. It doesn't stop until we're in heaven. And sometimes this growth feels fast. And we can see it. Sometimes it's real, real slow, right? So think about the grass, right? The grass in the spring, this time of the year, we get the rain, sun comes out, and it seems like it grows to lawnmower height, literally like in a couple of days, from like being dormant to like the, the lawnmower um, is out in just a couple of days. That same grass in the middle of August doesn't appear to do anything, right? It doesn't grow, it doesn't do anything, it starts to burn away. By the time winter is here, the grass looks like it's dead. Right? It's just brown and there's nothing there. But what happens next spring when the rains and the sun come? That grass starts to grow again. Oftentimes our, our, our growth in Christ is like that. There's times that we see this, this great growth and there's times when we don't see anything. And there's times when it even seems like it's dormant or dead. But it isn't because it's, because it's God who is doing this changing um, in us. And I started out with like that story of Sarah, who's that new Christian, because it seems like oftentimes new Christians grow very, very, very quick. And there's a, there's a um, number of reasons why that happens. God blesses them, and God causes this great growth, uh, this great growth to take place and stuff. But one of the things that, if you notice, that new Christians do, right, is they want to learn. They want to understand. They want to read their Bibles. They ask questions because they're trying to behold the glory of God. They're trying to figure it all out. They know that there's something there, and they just can't figure it out. So they try, and they try, and they try to behold God's glory. They talk to everyone they know to try to figure it out. People have been Christians for a, a while. will often go through these periods where it appears that there's little growth. Again, there's many different reasons. But one of them is they kind of stop doing that, and they... Stop reading their Bible all the time. They don't listen as close to sermons as what they once used to listen to. These cares in the world, these things and these concerns that are always there, just seem to become more and more important. And they stop taking that time to behold God, to behold Christ. We also know that sometimes God intentionally, intentionally puts us in those times where we don't seem to see any growth at all. We can look at Job a totally righteous person. And we can see the things that he goes through. Um, let's look at Job chapter 19. Uh, we have this as well. Um, 
Because God put Job in a place where Job was forced to look at God. God was forced to ask those questions. God was, or I mean, Mo, sorry again. Who's that guy? Job. So God puts Job here in this time. And Job is forced to answer a difficult question. And he looks to God and he goes through. And Job ends up saying this. He says, though he, meaning God, though he will slay me, yet I will hope in him. For I know that my Redeemer lives. And at last he will stand upon the earth. And after my skin has been thus destroyed, yet in my flesh I shall see God, whom I shall see for myself. And my eyes shall behold and not another. Job, even during these difficult times, his faith grows. His faith grows in this desolation. His faith grows in this wilderness. His faith grows when his friends are attacking him and accusing him and giving him bad stuff. But his faith continues to grow because God has placed him there and his faith grows. And when you find yourself in that place, it's helpful to look at kind of like the long the long-term lens, the vision. Where were you before? Have you grown? Do you love God more? Do you love God's people more? Are you more patient, more kind, more gentle? Maybe not right now, but compare yourself from when you first became a Christian. Has there been growth? Has there been stuff that has taken place? And it's helpful to do that. Um, those things that used to shake your faith, those things that made you doubt, do they rattle you as much as they used to? Even you go through. So it's, it's funny because I, uh, I always end up getting this um, seasonal depression kind of thing, like every fall. I go through it every single fall. And it's funny because it's been, it's been so long now, I can kind of like step back and see what's happened. And it used to... Well, it's kind of funny because, so Mickey and I got married, right? And we rented this little place on the water. So my, so my friends, my parents had friends at the church. The church was right here. I mean, I'm sorry, their house was right here. Little hill went down to the water. And they used to have a chicken coop there. Well, they remodeled the chicken coop into an apartment. <laughs> so, surprisingly, <laughs> me. So, so we rented the chicken coop right on the, right on the water. I see Bill's, Bill's already, his mind's turning. This might be a good idea. But we rented the chicken coop on the water. It was a beautiful, beautiful place. It's our first year of marriage. I would go to work, and everything was great, and we were all happy all fall, you know, winter. We're out there burning leaves and doing all this. And the winter rolls around. It's our first year of marriage. And I come home, and this is in Minnesota, in the winter. So in Minnesota, if you guys haven't ever been there before, the clouds roll in right around November, December, and they don't roll out to like April. They're in there the whole time. And I've been told that's actually God's gift that because if they didn't have the coal, the clouds there to like keep the heat in so it bounces around, it would be like unbelievably cold. Now this is an unbelievably cold that place in the first place. So anyway, the clouds roll in, it's gray, it's dark. We're in this chicken coop, so obviously it doesn't have any windows. They did put in a couple windows. And this is like the first time that I've really had this seasonal thing. So I come in, I get home from work at like, like 4.15. By 4.30, I'm like, trying everything I can to stay awake and he's like, I'm married this long, you know? And she just like, go through it. But what's happened is that's been so many years now. We've been married, Mickey's not here, so I'm gonna take a stab at this, 31 years, I think. <laughs> we got married in 87, maybe somebody do the math faster than I can. Um, but so, we, um, I know what's gonna happen, right? And I know 
every fall is going to start out with this pleasant melancholy. Where I remember growing up in Minnesota, and I remember the fields, and I remember the fall, and I remember burning leaves at the little chicken coop by the side of the lake. And it's pleasant, and I enjoy it, right? But it doesn't stay there. It ends up going that, and it gets darker, and it gets darker, and it's darker, and the depression sets in. And I know it's going to do that. I know at like 4.30 I'm going to fall asleep. But it doesn't bother me now the way it used to bother me because I know it's only going to last for a little while. And I know what to do with it, and I know what to go through with it. As you look at your life and you look at your growth, you find the same thing. So when these dark times come down, first time it happens, Mickey was ready to give up all faith in her husband, right? But now she's like, oh, I know it's going to happen. She might encourage me, why don't you take the dog for a walk? In the winter, why don't you go skiing you know, for the day? Why don't you, you know, do some of these things to get out? And so we both aren't rattled anymore. We know it's part of life, and we know kind of how to do it. And so as we're Christians longer and longer, and these times come in, they are meant to draw us to God. They're meant to increase our faith. They're meant for us to look at God and to behold his faith. And so we look and we see these things aren't as rattled. But that's how we see God working in these areas. And it's helpful to kind of examine yourself and to try to see it and to not be as rattled. But that, again, is not enough. The answer is to behold Christ, to behold the glory of Christ. And one of the ways that we do that, again, is to see the eternal view. So verse 18 says, um, and we all with unveiled face beholding the glory of God are being transformed into the same image from one degree of glory to another. For this comes from the Lord who is the Spirit. This comes from the Lord who is the Spirit. It is God who transforms us. Once again, we've looked at these two verses before. I just want to say them again. Philippians 1.6, he who began a good work will bring it to completion at the day of Christ. We remember these things. These are promises that God has given. He will never leave us or forsake us. He will complete this work. 1 John um, 4. Hang on, I just want to read this because it's, it's so powerful. Nope, oh, 1 John 3. It says this, 1 John 3 verse 2 says, Beloved, we are God's children now. Now, we are God's children now. And what will be has not yet appeared. But we shall be like him because we shall see him as he is. When we get to heaven, right, we don't know what we're going to be like. But when we see him, we will be like he is. And these are one of these promises that God gives us in these times. That we will be like him when we see him. You know, there's many different reasons why we kind of go through these times and why we forget that. But one other reason that we can't ignore is that Jesus Christ, I mean, so Jesus Christ wants us to behold his glory. What do you think Satan wants? Satan wants us to not behold his glory. And if you look at the next chapter in uh, 2 Corinthians, it talks about those ones who don't know Christ and that, say, and that, that says, the, I think, the prince of this world or the god of this world, whatever it is, has... Uh, I don't want to just do it. So I'm going to stop so I don't say it wrong. I don't want to take the time to read it. Read the next chapter. See what it says about the prince of this world and the veil and all that kind of stuff. So I don't want to, I don't want to say something. I'm trying to remember and trying to memorize and say something radical. But read it for yourself. There's some stuff that says that basically Satan doesn't want you to see the glory of God. So I'll leave it at that. But what's to take one example, right? Let's look at this. So Satan doesn't want us to see the glory 
of Christ. What is one of the most glorious things that God has done? What is one of the greatest things that God has done? He's forgiven us our sins, right? We were enemies against God. We hated God. And at that point is when God forgave our sins. We were dead in our sins and he forgave us. And you know what's even more glorious than that? We know that. We've been forgiven. We are his children. And what do we do? We sin again. And we sin again. And we sin again. And Jesus Christ forgives us. When the Apostle Paul is looking at he's looking at how we continue to sin. He's looking at the grace that God has given us. He says, should I keep on sinning or should we keep on sinning so that God's grace abounds even more? In other words, we see his grace so great when we sin and he forgives us. He's like, maybe we should just, kind of using like a human argument, it's like, well, if we want to see more of God's grace, let's just keep sinning more because God's going to forgive us more. But he's just saying, he's like, this is how amazing it is. He goes through and says, absolutely not, we shouldn't. But that's how amazing God's grace, grace becomes. But it's one of the hardest times to see God's grace after you've sinned. Because we don't want to confess our sin and we don't want to repent and we don't want to look in the mirror and see those things and so satan is right there accusing us he's called the accuser so he continues to accuse us right and so we end up just beating ourselves up i can't believe i did that i can't believe i didn't do that i can't believe what happens and satan brings it up again and again and again and so he wants us to live in this state of failure instead of a state of beholding the glory of god as he forgives us. But let's stop and go back to the story of Moses again, because remember, Moses went up to the mountain two different times. When was it that Moses' face was shining after he saw the glory of God? The first time when he went up there and he got the original uh, law and the stone? No, it was the second time. It was after he went up. It was after the people sinned. It was after they had um, forgiven him. It was after them. And, that, and so Moses was already pleading with God before, and he goes back up. And so this just gives us such great hope, and we see God's grace in it, because we think it should have been the first time when he sees the glory of God, but it's when he sees the glory of God forgiving people who are guilty and who deserve eternal judgment. But that's when God renews the covenant, not the first time, but the second time is when he renews the covenant after they have sinned. And in essence, he says, I will never leave you and I will never forgive you. So after you sin, all hope is not gone. But this is when God's grace comes in. This is when we want to go to God. This is when we want to repent and forgive. And like Paul says, I see God's grace all the more. So we're just about done. The next question is, if by beholding God, we become more like him, how do we behold God? Once again, it's God who does this work. And at the same time, God calls us to do stuff. So seven quick things. I'm going to go through them real quick. Number one, by reading your Bible. I encourage you to stop the busyness of life. Slow down and read the Bible. Number two goes along with it, and that's meditating on what you've read. Charles Spurgeon, for Bill here, Charles Spurgeon says, we read too much and we think too little. He says, we read too much and we think too little. How often, when you do read your Bible, do you just read it for your five or 10 or 15 minutes, check the box and then go without stopping to think? 
meditate on what you read. That's when you're really, really going to see the glory of God. It's in reading it, and it's in thinking about it afterwards. Um, most of Paul's letters, in fact, are like divided in two. Ephesians is the clearly divided, six chapters long. First three chapters just talk about the glory of Christ, the glory of Christ, the glory of Christ, the glory of Christ. Next three chapters, what do you do based on that? What do you do because of that? What do you do because of that? And Paul sees the glory of Christ, and he says, okay, this is what we do now. This is how we react. Um, number three, kind of the same thing, but by listening to the word preached and then thinking about it afterwards. I can't stress that part to think about it enough like that. Um, number four, by looking for him creation, by... Um, you know, just seeing him in nature, God has told us that he reveals himself, and he reveals his glory in, um, in creation. Um, by spending time in prayer, in praising God, in thanking God, in going through and thinking of these things, about specifically praising God, seeing God for what he is. When you praise God or thank God, it forces you. If you intentionally say this, okay, I'm going to thank God for three things today. It makes you think about those three things. If I'm going to praise you for who you are and for what you've done, even one thing, it makes you think about that one thing. Um, number six, by seeing God in others, by looking for the evidence of grace in these other people's lives, to see where God is working in life. The Apostle Paul did this all the time. So many of his letters start out with him saying, I thank God for you because of this. And he talks about it, their faithfulness during times of struggle, their generosity and their giving in times of poverty, um, their love increasing for one another, their faith in Christ increasing over and over. These are the things that Paul looks at him and says, like, I see evidences of God's grace. I see how God's working in your life during this time because you're faithful in times of struggle. You're still giving to God during times of poverty, your desperation, your love. I've seen what it was before. I've seen it now. It's growing. Your faith is growing. And so he sees this. Number seven, by asking the spirit to reveal himself to you. Let's look at this. First Corinthians two verses 12 to 13. Paul says this. He says, we have received not the spirit of the world, but the spirit who is from God, that we might understand the things freely given us by God. And we impart this in words, not taught by human wisdom, but taught by the Spirit, interpreting spiritual truths to those who are spiritual. This is a promise that the Holy Spirit will reveal himself to you, that you will understand spiritual things. We can't understand spiritual things without the Spirit. So one of the things we do is ask the Spirit to reveal himself and to reveal these things um, to us. Finally, I want to close by beholding the glory of Jesus Christ. This is in Colossians, um, so eight verses in Colossians, uh, verse 15 through 22 of chapter 1. He says this, and um, there's one slide, there we go. Um, says this, he, meaning Jesus Christ, Jesus Christ is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. For by him all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things were created through him and for him. 
and he is before all things, and in him all things hold together. He is the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in everything he might be preeminent. For in him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell. And through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of his cross. And you who were once alienated and hostile in mind, doing evil deeds, he has now reconciled in his body of flesh by his death in order to present you holy and blameless and above reproach before him. Let me just close in prayer. Father God, we come before you and we want to behold your glory. Jesus Christ, we come before you and we want to behold your glory. We want to be changed. We want to become more like you. And Holy Spirit, we just ask you to reveal yourself to us. We ask you that you'll teach us spiritual things that we might know, that we might see. Lord, that Satan will try to throw the veil back on us again and again and again. But we just pray right now, Lord, that you will not allow him to. You have removed the veil. The veil is removed. And Lord, if he can't get the veil, he'll try to stand in front of us so we don't see you. He'll use others to distract us so we don't see you. He'll use circumstances around us and in our life so that we look to them and not look to you. Lord, give us the power to behold your glory. Let not the enemy, Lord, have victory. For we know that you began this work. We know that you are faithful. We know that you'll carry it on. We know that you'll bring it to completion, Lord. We know that we will be like you when we see you on that day. We praise you in your precious and your holy name. Amen. Thank you for listening to this message from King's Cross Church in Manchester, New Hampshire. Please feel free to share or distribute this content, but do not charge for it or alter the content in any way without permission. King's Cross Church exists to treasure, proclaim, and grow in the gospel of Jesus Christ. To find out more about King's Cross Church, please visit us at kingscrossmanchester.com.